Thanks. Uh, as Maria said, my name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, just to give a, a slight uh, addendum or postscript to the Happy Mother's Day, uh, my wife Hannah and I, we spent several years uh, struggling with infertility. Uh, we've experienced miscarriage. The only reason why we have our two boys is because the dual miracles of uh, IVF and her uh, job's amazing healthcare uh, and health insurance. So if, if any of that is part of your story, I just want to just offer an open invitation. If that's something you want to talk about or you've wrestled with and want to talk to somebody about, like, we are here for you. Uh, and so that's just, without expiration, carte blanche, please, um, yeah, because that's, it's miserable. It sucks a lot. Um, just to, not to put too fine a point on it. Um, and uh, speaking of life-altering trauma, uh, we're talking about Psalm 91 this morning, which is not life-altering trauma, but where I want to start is, uh, and where I want to start is uh, me in second grade. Um, when I was in second grade, actually, I remember very vividly, you know, one of the book reading times where the teacher's up in front and, you know, explaining things and you're, you're learning to read and everything. I think they do that a lot earlier these days than when I was in second grade. Um, but it was a book on divorce, right? It was a book on what happens and what it's like as a kid when your parents divorce and what that means and what those changes are. And it kind of introduces that as, you know, a part of life. And I remember that because I remember thinking, like, man, that's, that is, man, this is what a waste of time. This is not going to happen to me. And I don't know anybody whose parents are divorced. This is dumb. And it was just a couple months later, maybe even a few weeks, that uh, my dad, so my dad at the time, uh, he's an Air Force veteran and retired Air Force. At the time, he was active duty Air Force and was uh, sent on a temporary additional duty for several weeks somewhere. And while he was gone, my mom told us that my, my younger brother and I that we're going to move. And, um, you know, dad is going to join us after he gets back from his trip. So we moved into my grandma's basement, and um, I remember that book that we read in second grade because I remember and it's like scarred into my memory the experience of my mom after my younger brothers went, went to bed, uh, my mom taking me out to my grandma's back porch and explaining to me that dad actually was not going to be joining us, that they were getting this thing called divorce, and had I ever heard of it. In that moment, I went from, on a turn of a dime, no worry whatsoever about the reality of my family as a refuge, as a place of safety and security and protection from things like those crazy, you know, this, this crazy teacher read to my class about. It went from no worry whatsoever to pretty much everything I said or did being uh, determining not just my attachment to one parent or another, but their attachment to me. See, there's this, there's this program that my brother and I did called Kids in the Middle because that's the experience of children of divorce is you're like kind of the rope and a tug of war between two parents. And even when they love you very much, they unknowingly manipulate you and and, and treat you conditionally should, would have been more accurate, but maybe a little too uh, on the nose to say, to, to name it, uh, kids with hypervigilance. But, you know, it's not, as, it's not as catchy as kids in the middle, I guess. Um, 
to the degree that, like, my parents would ask me and my brother, like, who do you want to live with? So that they can tell the judge during the custody battle. To put it, not to put it lightly, but that is um, a, a relational recipe for anxiety, <laughs> right? Because I think anxiety we, we think of as, a, as an individual dynamic or maybe something that's a neurological, biochemical reality for, for some people, but it, structural change or systemic change also catalyzes anxiety. Anxiety can be a cultural thing, a social thing, a relational thing. It's not just an individual thing, as we've kind of all recognized and have a much deeper appreciation for post-pandemic. But it was, it, like, I, I literally was, when I was thinking about sharing this with you all, I, I just chuckled, and it's just really hilarious to me that even though I went to four schools and moved six times in six years as a result of my parents' divorce, it took a global pandemic to cons- for me to consider that I might have some long-term anxiety problems, right? Partially because it's all I've known. It's just there the whole time, and you only realize it, and it only, you only kind of feel actually anxious, even though you are, because it's provoked by some external circumstance. It's brought out and exposed, right? So why am I harping on this? Well, it's important to know your own story, because that is very, very related to how we know God. John Calvin, in... Uh, his Institutes of the Christian Religion said, and I love this, without self, knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of the two precedes and gives birth to the other. It's a very eloquent and precise way of saying that our stories, apart from God, very much informs our relationship with God and how we view and perceive our relationship with God and who He is. It is the place of our, of our challenges and our opportunities, the ways that it's harder to see God and also maybe the ways that it is actually easier and more clear in the way that we see God. I think all of us generally err in one side or the other of what Calvin is talking about here in terms of having an emphasis or an imbalance toward knowledge of God versus knowledge of self. But if you only have a knowledge of God and not of self, it's going to leave you with a kind of pie-in-the-sky faith, something that's a little disconnected, very quick you know, to, to reassure someone with a silver lining, which you probably are thinking that that doesn't really reassure me, and you're right, that's the point. It's disconnected. It's often unempathetic and a-relational. But it could also be really self-righteous because when you don't have a knowledge of self and your challenges, your weaknesses, your sin, your brokenness, your wounds, then it's really easy to think, wow, I've, I'm, I'm pretty awesome. These other people, they could be awesome like me. Why don't they? It's, it's clearly just their choice and they're just lazy, so... It's, it's okay for me to judge them. But if you only have a knowledge of self, you're, it's, it's not really any better, right? We're, we're, we're then engaging, apart from God, in a kind of spiritual navel-gazing or a, even a spiritual narcissism where we're so obsessed with our own state and are we okay that we can miss the needs of the people around us. It can be 
easy to feel crushed under the despair because we see our faults so clearly, and yet we forget the love through which God sees us and the grace that makes those faults and that sin irrelevant to our relationship with Him. Alone, just one imbalance is, they are fragile and terrible anchors in the midst of change. And the more anxious you are, you know this post-pandemic especially, like I don't even have to describe all the ways this is the case, that the more anxious you are, eventually even one of those anchors get discarded for an even cheaper alternate refuge like distraction and busyness, escapism, achievement and affluence, could go on, right? I say all this because Psalm 91, maybe as Maria read it for us this morning, you heard it and you read it on the screen, and you're like, okay, this is cool, this is great. So what? Like maybe it didn't hit you. Maybe it just kind of bounced off your heart a little bit. And I would encourage you to consider that maybe that's because there's a knowledge of self that could still be mined and plumbed the depths of that that actually increase our appreciation for Psalm 91. Because what Psalm 91 is, and this is where we're going to spend all of this morning, is that it is this over-the-top, like extreme, I'm running out of adjectives already, vociferous uh, epitome of, of, and I don't normally run out of adjectives, like this is a really weird thing for me right now. Um, It's a comprehensive assurance God gives us because God knows that our view of him is clouded by our story. Because God understands and knows that living in a fallen world means it will be harder for us to see him as dependable instead of a cosmic letdown. That it will be harder for us to see his love as faithful as opposed to conditional. To see him as a judge or a healer rather than, as I talked about briefly during communion last week, our divine host as a refuge from anxiety instead of a source thereof. My point is this, is, is that if, you, if all you experience is change, maybe some of you over the last couple of years, like it just feels like the, the ground has moved underneath you and you're like, I'm just waiting for like something to stay consistent and what I expect it to be. That'd be awesome, right? And the more you experience that, the more you're probably going to experience an anxiety that develops and grows into a hypervigilance. That's just what it means to live in this world, right? We long for refuge, respite, and rest, but we have a hard time trusting any promise thereof because for many of us, refuge is just a disappointment waiting to happen. Now, I know it sounds like I'm talking about my own story there, and that definitely is the case, but not primarily. What I'm actually referring to is the circumstances that Israel were were experiencing in returning to the promised land after 70 years of exile, right? They experienced, can you imagine, like 70 years of of being in a place that you don't call home, being in an Airbnb or traveling for 70 years. And some of you are like, that sounds pretty awesome right now, especially if you're a mom on Mother's Day. Like, I get it. Like, I could do that for a long time. I don't know about seven years, but I could give it a run for its money. I get that. But... Consider the instability and the distrust and the difficulty Israel was likely carrying with them as much as any other baggage they had in returning to the promised land two generations later, right? 
So this is the nature and the context that helps us appreciate not just Psalm 91, but especially verses 1 through 2. Let me read this again because this is when the psalmist is describing refuge from the first person pronoun perspective. He says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Note, um, I think, yes, I did underline them on the slide. There are four different names for God that he uses in four lines. Okay? The first, most high, this is, this is saying that God is the most glorious, the most worthy of worship, the most honor-deserving of gods. He is the highest, right? But then the Almighty is, is implying and describing God as the most powerful, the most sovereign, the most in the driver's seat than anything, than any other agent in existence. When it says, anytime, by the way, I actually didn't copy-paste this over um, the word Lord there should actually be all three uh, or all four capital letters. And anytime you see that in the Old Testament, that's because we are, the English translation is superimposing that over what's called, this is a really impressive sounding word, guys, the tetragrammaton. Okay, use that in your next trivia night. Those are a thing again, right? Okay. Um, I had anxiety just thinking about that. Um, uh, but it's, it's, it, the tetragrammaton it, is Yahweh. It's when God to Moses, uh, when, in answer to the question of who are you, who should I tell Israel you are, he says, Yahweh. I am who I am. There is no label or name that can describe me because I existed before even the category of labels. And who I am is faithful to my promises, and my covenant. So all of that meaning is, is like superimposed into the word when the psalmist says that, that the Lord, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, he's bringing that context of the exodus into it as well. But then at the end, he says, my God in whom I trust, and this isn't just the Lord. This isn't just the Almighty. This isn't just the Most High. He says, this is my God. This is a term of intimacy and endearment, even of possessiveness. He says, that God I was just describing, that's my God. And I trust him. He's my refuge, my fortress. See, Psalm 90, which is very intended to be paired with Psalm 91. It's almost part one and part two. If Psalm 90, is, is the point of it is that that God is our only lasting satisfaction in a fragile and inconsistent world, then Psalm 91, its point is that God is the only reliable refuge and place of peace in an anxious world. Right, have you, let, me, let, me, let me think about it this way, because this is really important for us to understand where the psalmist is coming from. This is not offered frivolously. Have you ever met anyone or known anyone who, when you, you know, you can just see in their eyes like, they look older in their eyes than they actually are, right? Because, you know, they, they've been through the ringer, and they somehow come out on the other side more wise and not just more broken. There's this kind of heaviness, and maybe, maybe in a sad way, but maybe not. Maybe just they, they have a gravitas and, and a, a weightiness to their presence because of what they have experienced. That's where the psalmist is coming from in this. 
He's not saying these things from a kind of rote rehearsing of, of truths that are conceptually known but not intimately known. This is the claim of someone who's been through it, who knows these four sides of God because they've been desperate for those sides of God, because they have been hypervigilant through the experience of this world, not because they have been privileged or comfortable because they're bowling with bumpers. And when you experience this kind of assurance, when you get it, when you like taste and see that it, God's actually this awesome and this good, you can't actually talk about it from a first-person perspective for very long until, without switching into the second person, right? You, you want to offer that reassurance that you have tasted and seen because you know both what it's like to go without it and you also know what it's like to experience it. And so in verses 3 through 13, he switches. He, he, he doesn't just say, I will say this. He says, let me tell you about this God and who he is to you. He switches to the second person because experience catalyzes exhortation. So I'm not going to read this whole passage again. I just want to pick a few snippets of it because it, in the, I, want to, I want you to see the big picture here because he goes through three themes or three dimensions of God as refuge and three different ways that God is protective. In the first few verses, we get this picture of holistic protection, Right? It's not just the kind of hard protection that he describes in verse 4 when he says, his faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. Like, that's kind of the protection that I'm thinking of. He actually starts with something far more tender. He says, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, which is like a bird catcher, right? And the picture is that he will cover you with his pinions, which are uh, the, the, the wing feather, right? And under his wings, you will find refuge. It's the tenderness of a like, mother bird and the strength of a shield and a buckler both. It is a holistic, comprehensive protection. It's also an individual protection, right? Because in verses 7 through 10, we got this, this, this picture of, of, of military and, and battle and combat that in the midst of a, a war, a thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it won't come near you. And the word you there is like very emphatic. It's like God saying like, no, you. Like, yes, you. I'm talking about you. You're not accepted from this. This isn't just a generic promise. This is a specific personal promise to you. God's love for his people is as equal to his love of individual persons. And lastly, if that wasn't enough, in 11 through 13, he says, not only in the earthly realm, and what you can see in terms of how you know you are protected, you will be protected with a protection that is unseen and spiritual as well, right? The angels are marshaled and mobilized to come to your aid. The point of this is that God is trying to communicate, and through this psalmist, that there is no resource, there is no effort, there is no tool at his disposal, no power at hand that God is not going to leverage for the sake of making sure that you are never apart from him. That nothing, as Romans 8 says, neither angels nor demons nor principalities, nothing can take you 
from God's right hand. Now, I'll be honest, even as I'm reading this, I, I'm thinking about how I would have heard this before I was a Christian, right? Because I was not a Christian uh, until I became a Christian in my junior year of college. And before that, I would have read this with a lot of skepticism. I would have thought, man, this is way too good to be true. Gee, I wonder if that has anything to do with the story I was sharing earlier. It does. Just That was sarcasm? Okay, cool. My point is this. Over the years, and one of the amazing blessings and gifts of this thing that I get to do and I'm doing right now of being a pastor, but not just up here on Sunday mornings, and all, but also like individually over beer when I hang out with each of you personally and we talk about your story, I find so much assurance and my skeptical previous, uh, previous to born again Brad is reassured as I am assuring you. It is a gift. Like, is a, is a powerful antidote to anxiety because that means I have to actually believe this stuff in a sense and I have to preach this to myself before I can preach it to you. Like one of the phrases, uh, actually, it's an assurance even. One of the assurances that we say up here frequently is that we want to be the kind of church where you don't have to believe in or to belong. And it sounds like that that is really and especially in, or only for those who may be feeling skeptical or doubting or have differing beliefs than we do, and it's actually for, for their sake and welcoming. I'm telling you, I have selfish reasons for doing that. Do you know how miserable it would be to do this if we all agreed? You all would be so certain and confident, I would be alone in my doubt and anxiety. Isn't it great that we actually get to point one another in the second person and in the plural and the singular to Jesus? That we can know that we have some assurance that he is our holistic protection, our individual protection, and our unseen protection too. You don't have to be a pastor to experience that. One of the, my favorite things I started doing with my son, which I, uh, I got away from after Easter because I got really sick and we got out of our rhythms and so I'm telling you this now so you can hold me accountable and ask me next week, did I restart it? Um, but I, I, we, Ransom and I, he's, you know, five going on five and a half or 25. Um, during breakfast in the mornings while getting ready to, for the day, uh, he would bring his Jesus Storybook Bible and pick one story out of it for me to read. And then we'd talk about it. We'd only talk, we, if, if I let him, we'd just read the stories over and over, like, like, one, one after another all morning. Um, but I insist on only one because I just want, I want to talk to him about it. You know? And I am, I am not condescending in some way that like, let me teach you this stuff because you don't get it. I learn in giving assurance to my son that Jesus loves him. And then I get to hear his questions through his perspective and his lens. And I actually see both myself and God more clearly as a result of it. Ransom doesn't even know how much he blesses me in that. So if you want to sign up for Table Kids and volunteer, I'm only kind of kidding. We've, had, we've actually had people come to faith because they volunteered in Table Kids, right? Because their, their, their spouse or their kid was in there, and they just they wanted to serve in some way, and they're hearing, you know, the teacher tell the gospel story through the Jesus Storybook Bible, and they're like, actually, I'm good. I want that. That's amazing, and also not surprising. 
So all that said, it might be hard to share an assurance and to assure someone in the second person if you've never heard that assurance from God, if you've never felt that. And that's so glad you pointed that out because at this point in the psalm, God is functionally saying, okay, how about right now? Let's do that because I agree. That's a problem. Let me tell you that. And it switches to the first person again, but it's not from the psalmist's perspective. It's from God's perspective. I just want to point out that this is incredibly rare in the Psalms. There's only a few times in all 150 Psalms where God speaks directly in the first person to his people, and this is one of them. It's really special. It says, Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. There are eight, eight explicit assurances in three verses. One of them is kind of repeated. It's the, you know, I I will deliver him, but hey, in case you didn't hear me, I will also rescue him. Kind of the same thing, right? Let me just run through these. Like, listen, I will deliver, I will protect, I will answer, I will be with, I will rescue, I will honor, I will satisfy, I will show him my salvation. There are three Hebrew words for what we translate as guard or protect. They're all in this psalm. There are Three Hebrew words for rescue or deliver, they're all in this psalm. There are four primary names for God in the Old Testament. They are all in this psalm. There are eight explicit assurances, as if those first many pictures that God is trying to communicate to his people, no, you don't get it. I am so with you. I am still with you. I will be with you. I am with you. I am your refuge. Let me say it eight different ways. Thank you. I was getting so excited. I almost lost the... If there were nine explicit assurances, this would have been all over the front row. (laughs) Really ruined the, like, building... uh, No, 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 not your... Totally not your fault. That's all on me. If you lose your podium while preaching, I am with you, right? I don't know. It is hard to see how earnestly and eagerly God is trying to communicate this assurance in this psalm without like sitting and understanding our story, without knowing God in all of these dimensions. And it's as if God is saying to us, and this is why he's being so overwhelmingly explicit and repetitive in his assurance. He's saying to us, I know that trusting me for refuge is hard when it feels like you've only ever been a refugee. I know that's foreign and alien. I know hearing my voice in the midst of anxiety and worry and insecurity, never mind divorce, failure, social media, I know that's even harder. I know that there is so much evidence stacked against my, an experience of, of my covenantal faithfulness and so much for doubting that reality. I get it. I see it. I'm being overwhelming in my assurance, not because 
I'm frustrated with you for not getting it. Or because it's hard to, for you to trust, but because I am excited and love to remind you all the time. And let me tell you again about the depth and the breadth and height of my relentless love for you. I will exhaust Hebrew vocabulary and still not be able to fully communicate. In fact, God says, let me do more than tell you because he doesn't just talk the talk, he walks the walk. Let me show you, he says in verse 16. I will, with long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Jesus is God not settling for just talking about and introducing himself. Jesus lived the life we should live and died the death we deserve in order to communicate our love because that is what the creator of the universe, the eternal God and source of all that is good and life in this, in every, anything, everything, and everywhere, that God said, I love you so much, I'm going to demonstrate it by dying for you. And I know that especially if you grew up in church and you have a far better story and childhood experience to illustrate and help you see God's love more clearly, I know that that can still, even then, bounce off our hearts. Which is why, speaking of the Jesus Storybook Bible, just hear that. It says, and though they would forget him and run from him, deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always and long for him. Lost children yearning for their home. And yet, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a, kids, if you know this, please say it with me. Ready? A never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Which is why every adult should also own and read this book. And why, kids, you should tell your parents to read it to you all the time because they need it as much or more than you do. Okay? wasn't necessarily homework. I'm just saying you can. Okay, let me, I want to handle, I want to kind of address three objections or anticipate a th three different ways you might be hearing this, and then we're going to move to the cool already four questions. Fantastic. So we're going to tackle those and probably maybe more um, on the other side of these three objections. The first is this. You may, have, you may be hearing me, and you might be distracted because you're like hoping I will answer this question, but like, yeah, but God doesn't protect us from everything. Bad things still happen. That's why it's hard to trust him. My parents were or were not divorced. That doesn't matter. It's still now. Life is hard. How is this true? That's the problem. I, I want to point to you, and by the way, one valid, <laughs> I get that. That was my first response to reading this too. Verse 14 says, very importantly, I will, um, sorry, verse 15, when he calls to me, I will answer. You call when you have need. God's not saying we don't, we won't ever have need of him. That's not what is promised here. I will be with him in trouble. Doesn't say I will save him from trouble. It says I will rescue him and honor him. The language here is in an ongoing sense. I will keep rescuing him because if you're like me, we can be slow to learn. And we need rescuing repeatedly and ongoing and continuingly. That's the gift. And I know that that tension is, is real 
And it might be actually a cop-out if we didn't actually have God proving and demonstrating not just in word but indeed his with usness that includes going to the cross. Because he does not spare himself from anything and everything and more of what he asks us to endure in this world. See, this, this resurrection without crucifixion goal we might have in life, I just want to tell you now, that's actually not in the Bible. The idea of life apart from death or protected from death, at least in this act of the grand redemptive story, that's not, that's not a promise that we have right now. That's a promise that the world would say is very optimistically and naively possible, and it's not. And a major source of our anxiety, I'm willing to bet, is, is when we forget that that's a lie and we start thinking that it's true without realizing it. Objection number two. Um, <clears throat> maybe you're saying to yourself, okay, Brad, don't even act like verse 14a doesn't exist. You read it a few times, and I noticed that it says in verse 14, because he holds fast to me in love, as if God is making a condition to his rescue our holding fast to him and our faith in a way that is like actually counterproductive and counter with grace. I know it sounds conditional, if not icky, but this is the genre of psalm in Hebrew poetry that it doesn't have a category for condition. What's being described here is not condition, but coincidence. They are coinciding together. What he's saying, another way of saying that is, whenever, whenever, he holds fast to me in love. I will deliver him in and through and in the midst of that embrace. It is actually through the embrace that I, will exact, that I will exact my deliverance. I will protect him because he knows, right, that's who I am. And we're, we're BFFs. That really does not bring in the gravitas of what's being communicated here. My, my, my point is that, like, God's, the difference between who God is and his name is so infinitely non-existent and small that to know God's name in the sense of that relational knowing that I talked about earlier is to, is to be with him, period. What he's saying is, I can't help but rescue you because I am with you, and you know that because you hold fast to me in love. Objection three, and then we'll get into the questions. Okay, maybe, maybe I have satisfied your objections, and maybe you're like, this sounds awesome. I love this. Can I have that assurance, please? I would love that. But maybe you're, you're sitting, thinking to yourself, what if I still don't feel very assured? What if it still doesn't feel like God's a refuge? What if that still sounds hard? What if that still feels really hard, if not impossible for me? Maybe it feels incomplete, Maybe he feels untrustworthy. Part of book four, I, I, I talked about this last week, that the theme for book four is maturity. This is somebody who through the experience of succeeding and failing, of living life in and through God's refuge, he actually believes it now. And that that is a process of maturation where you start to understand that assurance is something, is, it is relational and not informational, that just hearing information or data is not going to make you feel assured. So it's relational, but it's also received from the outside in, not manufactured from, from within, right? It's tasted, it's experienced, right? 
Gee, where could we taste Psalm 91's comprehensive assurance all in one place? Oh, that's the church. That's what we're doing right now. I know, even if you don't feel very assured, hang on, because you're doing it, right? The Psalms, all 150 of them, were considered Israel's hymnal. They sang this in corporate worship, just like we sing songs before and after the sermon and communion. So we're singing in the first person. Sometimes worship isn't just about us describing our feelings toward God. Sometimes it's us actually saying uh, how we should feel about God in a way that backfills into our hearts, not in a legalistic way, but in a way that helps us to remember and to be reminded that God is our refuge, our very present help in trouble, right? Where else can you give and receive second-person Jesus assurance than this weird thing that we call communion? Oh, that's right, because that's the cruciform relationship where we are communing with God vertically and with one another horizontally, and we are, in essence, telling one another as we take bread and wine, your family, you're in. Welcome home. You're loved. This is where we hear God's assurance in his words, in and through his word. Right? I just want to encourage you, it is not inauthentic. It is not fake to worship when you're not feeling it. To just show up even if you're not feeling it. Because I'll give you a, let me tell you a secret. That's most people. Most of the time. I'm not even kidding, myself included. Thank God. Like, you all don't know how lucky I am to have a job where I actually have to show up whether I like it or not. I am, I'm always glad I do, just for the record. Don't worry, right? Okay, let's see what... Um, wow, we have, yeah, four, five questions this morning. We'll see if we get to them. All right, first question. The passage gives the assurance that no evil shall be allowed to befall but of course, that isn't many people's experience, even despite their trust in God. That can make this promise seem like a lie. How would you respond to that? Also, are you sure the Tetragrammatron isn't a transformer? <laughs> All of those are valid questions, for the record. It's a very common misunderstanding. Um, Yahweh transforms into... No, let's ignore that. Um, yeah, I would say that... W- Something that we have living in the New Testament era that the Old Testament people of God didn't uh, nuance or, or know the need to nuance is that the Old Testament era was looking forward to what we now look forward to as when Jesus returns. And so what's being described here is an ultimate destination that we get to experience a partial one. Um, because we are still in that already but not yet tension. But I will say, even when we're talking about, where is it? Um, No evil will befall you. Okay, just before that, in verse 5, it says, you will not fear the terror of the night. Not that there won't be terror, nor the arrow that flies by day. You won't fear it. That doesn't mean you won't get shot nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness. We all know that that's also going to be the case now, right? Nor the destruction that wastes at, noon, at noonday. What he's saying, what's being said here is, like, no matter what the threat is, you won't fear it. Not that the threat won't ever be there, or it's not part of the reality. The psalmist doesn't even make that claim. What he's saying is that, like, 
ultimately, you are so secure and so protected within God as refuge that you need not worry about it, that it actually can't harm you in an ultimate sense, even if it does in a present sense. Okay, let me get to the next question here. How does Psalm 91 and God's assurance of protection apply to the Christians who are subject to first century church persecution and modern day persecution? Also a fantastic question. I think they believed this more than we did. Actually, in the midst of and despite the persecution, that's one of the things that makes this so much more real. Um, there's a fantastic book uh, that just came out. I'm just starting to read it. It's called The, the Non-Anxious Leader. It's by Mark Sayers, who, if you know me or Bryce at all, we are total fanboys of this guy. Um, maybe unhealthily so, as I say that out loud. Um, he wrote a book, and like in first part, the first part of the book, he's just kind of talking about the historical precedent for the cultural moment that we're in right now. And that you can look, and he describes it in vivid de- detail. It's fascinating that uh, when the telegraph was invented, and in connecting so many people across the world at a near instantaneous, especially compared to what communication was like before, uh, speed, that it actually ended up generating all kinds of new anxieties, all kinds of new stresses and mental health diagnoses. And the reason why being like, he's not just claiming this, you know, with historical hindsight, it's also citing people who are wrestling with it in that moment in the late 19th century. The, The reason why is because I have to worry about all of the things that I was never aware of before. Okay? We are at once aware of all of these challenges and problems, and yet remarkably protected by them. And just like in you know, the late 19th century, actually, that was accompanied by a significant, accelerated increase in wealth and safety. Those two things happen at the same time. Greater wealth, greater anxiety. Wait, more money, more problems. Okay, cool. I say that by... Let me get back to the actual question. Um, I'm also ADD, did I mention that? Um, how do we wrestle with that in a way? How did the, the early first century Christians wrestle with it? I think they, they had a more satisfying trust in it. Right? It's actually in the midst of trouble that we understand and appreciate and experience God's presence more. By the way, that's why like, this thing called mission or mercy or loving your neighbor is not just for our neighbor's sake, it's also for us because that's actually when we have to go out from our safety and comfort and what we can expect and know into the place of anxiety and experience God's love as we love our neighbor. Okay, one more question here. I may have missed the context, but do we know this passage applies to everyone and not a prophet? Uh, Good question. We do know that this in the way, the format for in nerdy reasons, I remember reading in the commentaries, but cannot quote right now, um, this was one of those that were particularly utilized in public worship for Israel. So even if this was, you know, written from the perspective of a prophet, it would have been practiced within the community of God's people. So I got another question or two. I will try to respond to them over text later, but we're, thank you for answering, asking such good questions because this is, this is the wrestling that we're invited to, that's good, that actually helps us to taste and see that, that God is good. Um, to introduce communion, because I can't think of a better transition right now. Um, 
One of my favorite ways I've heard communion described is, is coming forward to be being embraced by God, right? If you think of eating the bread and drinking the wine, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a divine hug. The comfort that we experience as, as the family of God and the people of God with God in a way that his presence is, I don't understand it, but he is, his promise to be especially and particularly with his people as we celebrate communion. It's an embrace. Jonathan Edwards, um, in one of his sermons, he actually, he talked about the, the idea of describing honey from a place of never having tasted versus describing it from a place of having tasted it. There's a conceptual knowledge and knowing God and then and, and being able to talk about God and then there's the, the relational, the sense of who God is and the sense of the beauty that comes from that relationship. I don't think it's an accident that God chose to communicate his embrace with bread and wine because he knows that we're not just brains on sticks, that we're relational beings because we're made in the image of a Trinity, Trinitarian God. He longs to know us, and so he invites us to this. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he says, this is my body. It is broken for you so that you would know that I am greater and bigger than the doubts of your heart. Likewise, he took the wine and poured it out, and he says, this wine is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the forgiveness or remission of sins. I know there are many things that are keeping you from me. I got that. As often as you eat this bread and drink this wine, you proclaim second-person assurance, my death until I return. That actually is how we're blessed, is actually through that. Because we are receiving his blessing, his nourishment, we are proclaiming it to one another, and we are making a statement to the world that this is where refuge is. If that is your hope, not even, I'm not saying that that is your certainty. I'm saying if that is your hope, if that is your longing, come and eat. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the invitation to taste and see that you are good. Thank you for the nourishment that surpasses all understanding, that gives us peace, that you are our refuge in the midst of a storm. Whatever storm that may be, Lord, we pray that you meet us there. We pray that you we pray that you give us that assurance this morning. And we thank you that we can depend on that. We pray this in your name. Amen.